Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot or cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments that you may clothe yourself and be Clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to put on your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. There are so many gems in this passage that we can't possibly pick them all up. I I felt this week as I was studying this letter like a a miner that had hit like a gold vein. And all these gold nuggets are pouring out. And I'm like, man, I can't get my, I can't, out of my pockets aren't big enough. And so we're going to miss some today. Uh, But I want to point out just uh, four different ways to look at this letter. Four different words that can help us break down As we look at these few verses, amen or amen, assessment, advice, and asking. So all beginning with an A, maybe helping you remember amen, assessment, advice, and asking. So let's look at those in each as we go through. Verse 14, Jesus gives this self-description the words of the Amen, or Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. You, you know by now, if you've been here from the series, that every letter starts the same way. Jesus gives a description of himself. And obviously, that's a priority. Uh, you should pick it up by now, after seven times, that, hey, the most important thing is Jesus. We got to get him in our sights correctly. All this other helpful encouragement or correction is great, but we got to have Jesus right in the right in the crosshairs. We got to understand who's talking to us before we begin to understand ourselves. And so here's how he describes themselves: the words of the Amen. Now, growing up in Southern Baptist churches, Amen was either said by an old gentleman in the back of the church that had a deep voice. I don't know how they got that out in every church, but you had to be 70 or older and you had to have a deep voice. If you had a squeaky voice, you couldn't qualify. So there was always an older gentleman with a, 
with a deep voice, and just every once in a while during the sermon, he'd belt belt out, Amen. And it seemed to be encouraging to the preacher. I didn't really know what he meant, but that's what he did. Or it was used as a, a cue, a verbal cue is, you can sit down now. So you would be standing, and when somebody said, Amen, you just knew, hey, that's the time to sit down. So that's how I thought about that word. But in the Hebrew, it actually means faithful and true. So, so Jesus is saying the same thing. I'm, I'm the, the amen and I'm the faithful and true. This is the same thing. I'm saying it in the, in the Hebrew, then I'm going to say it in the Greek. I'm the faithful and true one. Jesus is coming into this, this town who is blind. They don't know it. But he's trying to set himself up right at the very beginning as, you can trust me. You can, you can trust what I'm about to say. I'm the one who has a crystal clear vision of who you are. You don't, but it's okay because I'm here. I'm like the ophthalmologist. I'm the doctor. I'm the eye doctor who's going to come in and say, I can see. You can't see clearly, but it's okay. I've got some corrective lenses for you. I've got some corrective words for you. I'm the faithful and true one. You can trust my diagnosis. And of course, that's very hard to do because you'd much rather live in a state of denial. Everyone would. No, I see myself correctly. I know what's going on with me. I know what's going on with the world. I know what's going on with God. And Jesus is trying to kindly say right at the very beginning, no, I'm the one who sees. And you don't see. But you can trust me. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good God and I'm coming in with some crystal clear vision for you. So, so pay attention. I'm the, also notice he says I'm the beginning of all creation. In, in other words, Jesus is trying to say everything originates and terminates on me. I'm the beginning, and and later on in Revelation, I'm the beginning and the end. Everything points to me. Everything originates from me. Everything comes back to terminate on me. So Jesus is, again, coming into this city, wealthy, elite, self-sufficient church. This wealthy, elite, self-sufficient church who thought things terminated on them who thought things originated with them. I don't need any help. I'm self-originating my wealth. I don't need help from the outside. Jesus, the ophthalmologist, the doctor is coming in and saying, you don't see it, but you can trust me. And what you, one thing you need to trust is everything originates from me. The best you are is a steward of resources. You're not an owner of anything. And it's all coming back to me. It's all going to terminate on me, not on you, church at Laodicea. So let's just stop here with just this verse and make hopefully a, a particularly strong point of application because to me, Jesus's self description in this letter and all the other letters is really the most important part of every letter. And the reason I say that is because we have to trust that Jesus alone is the one who has a clear vision. He clearly sees our culture. He clearly sees our church. He clearly sees you. He clearly sees me. He sees what's going on in heaven. He sees what's going on in earth. 
And so no matter whatever Jesus is going to say when we open up the pages of the Bible, no matter how easy or difficult, no matter how agreeable or unagreeable they may seem to our thinking, no matter how educated we are, no matter how elite we are, no matter how wealthy we are, our response to him in his words should be, Amen. Jesus, whatever you say, Amen. You're the faithful and true one. You're the beginning. You're the end. It doesn't start with me. I'm not going to argue. You, everybody here who, who has been a parent or is a parent, you have a child. Well, why? Well, why? And what? And you just want to say, just obey. Just I'm right and you're not. I don't really even need to or want to explain it anymore. Just say, you're right, Dad. You're right, Mom. And let's move forward. And that's what Jesus is kindly trying to say is you don't see it. And the biggest problem is that you don't see it. And I'm coming in with this clear vision to try to help you see something. And the best thing you can do is to say, you know what, Jesus? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So I'm going to trust your words and not my words. And so the Bible is very clear that everything originates and terminates on Jesus. Now, you and I live in a culture that's the wealthiest culture ever known to the planet. There's really really no comparison. We live in the most powerful nation on the planet. We live in the most self-sufficient nation on the planet. We live in the most pursuit of, pursuit of liberty and pursuit of happiness nation on the planet. We give ourselves the title, the world's superpower. Everyone in this room understands that. We're the world's superpower. You've just grown up with that language. Whatever you think of it, it's just the language in the culture. Now imagine a church that's planted in that culture. What kind of characteristics might it bring in to the church? And Jesus is trying to make it crystal clear here, not only to Laodicea, but to Christ Community Church and every other church, that, that I am the only superpower. There is no other superpower. There's power that's been bestowed to people, but but nobody originates that. Nobody uh, brings it to the front by themselves. You remember when Jesus was before Pilate? And it's right before his crucifixion, and Pilate is basically trying to help Jesus understand, hey, Jesus, I have the power to let you go. And he says, don't you know what kind of... Imagine this. Pilate saying to Jesus, Jesus... Don't you understand my power? Jesus, like, you don't have any power. You don't self-generate any power, Pilate. The only power you have came from my father, which frustrated Pilate. But Jesus is saying, Pilate, do you understand the power I have? And that I've given you a tiny little sliver of power. You don't, you don't own it. You're just a steward of it. And whether it's a person or whether it's a nation, you didn't generate power. You were given power. And you can steward that power in any way, number of ways, but you didn't generate it. So everything, absolutely everything, 
begins and ends with Jesus, not me, not you, not a nation. It's a sobering statement for people who celebrate independence. What I want you to see is, is if, you, if you don't embrace Jesus as the divine physician, if you don't really believe that he sees everything with perfect clarity, if you say, well, he's the amen, but with an asterisk. Like, he sees a lot of things, but, you know, if you read, really read through the New Testament, there's some not very progressive thinking that Jesus has, and so we don't take that part. So, yeah, he's an amen on getting me to heaven. He's not an amen on this over here. So I got amen with an asterisk, Jesus. If you don't really buy into it in that way, trust him in that way, trust that he's the faithful and true one, then you really don't have ears to hear. And the watershed moment for every disciple is deciding whether God's word has final authority in your life or your word has final authority in your life. See, every disciple has to come to that watershed moment like, you know what, I've been trying to take part of Jesus and part of my words, and you know what, none of my words count. It's just a watershed moment every disciple comes to, and you probably come to it over and over in your life like, okay, I've been following my ways, my words, and I I just have to say it's Jesus' ways, it's Jesus' words. See, when you come to the Bible, you have to say, is it the truth or is it a book of tips for better living? So Jesus is trying to say right out of the gate, I'm the one who sees clearly. I'm the faithful and true one. I'm the one that you need to come to for help. I'm the, I, everything begins and terminates on me. So this would be a place to ruthlessly ask yourself this question. Which is it for you? Have you, have you just said, it's the Bible? I may not understand it. I may not agree with it. I may, it may frustrate me, whatever it is. But his ways, his views are the best ways. Or have you decided, well, I'm picking and choosing. Or maybe you've just chosen another word. It's the place to start. Assessment number two. Verses 15 through 17. I know your works. Here's his assessment. You're neither hot or cold. I wish you were one, but you're lukewarm. So I'm going to, in the, in the Greek, it's I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me puke would be a better way to say it. Here's your assessment. You say I'm rich, I'm prosper, I don't need anything. And you don't realize, see, I'm not realizing, I'm not seeing what the truth is, which is you're wretched, pitiable, and then imagine this town that's wealthy is poor in Jesus' eyes. This town where people come to get vision, blind. This town where people come to get elite clothing, they're naked. Imagine here, just imagine for a moment you're sitting in the congregation and your, your, your 360 about internal evaluation is, hey, we're pretty good. And hey, there's a word from the Lord. He's, he's giving an assessment of our church today. And this is what you hear. Ooh, wow. That'd be a tough, 
tough lift just to listen to that. So here's Jesus' assessment. And what he's trying to say here, what we need to notice here, is that all the problems in the culture of Laodicea have migrated right through the front door into the church. All the, all the temperature, all the temperament, all the, the cultural uh, things of the outside have just come right in and sat inside the church. It's the case with all of the churches that we read, read through. And so uh, the church, which is God's counterculture, when people are coming from the outside saying, I'm tired of the outside, I'm looking for a counterculture, when they come into Laodicea, they just find the same thing. It's no different inside than outside. The, the, the water temperature outside is the same temperature on the inside. So, so when people who are tired and sick and they need some kind of hot bath and they say, I've tried everything the world has to give me. I'm coming to the church. I'm so desperate. And they walk in and what do they find? It's just the same. I'm dying of thirst. I've had a drink from every well that the world has to offer, and I thought that was the well, but I end up thirsty, so I'm coming, dying for thirst in the church, and can they give me a cold drink of water, and what do they find? It's the same. Here's a nice, lukewarm cup of water. You know, if you like coffee, you like hot coffee or iced coffee. But how about a nice, lukewarm cup of coffee? Nobody likes that. If you like tea, you like hot tea, you like cold, sweet iced tea. But how about a nice cup of lukewarm tea this morning? See, people from the culture are hungry. They're tired. They're thirsty. They're coming in saying, I'm broken and I need healing. I'm thirsty and I need somebody to give me a drink. And I'm coming hoping this is different than the world. And they've walked into Laodicea and they say, you know what? It's just the same. There's nothing sacred in here. It's just the same as the world. There's nothing transcendent in here. It's the same thing as the world. And Jesus looks at this and says, you know what, guys? That makes me want to puke. It's a really strong assessment. The primary cause, perhaps not the only one, but the one that's mentioned here of their lukewarm attitude was wealth. I'm guessing there were other causes But this is the only one that's mentioned. Verse 17. Their assessment, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I don't need anything. Do you see the beginning and the ending of their thoughts? Everything begins with me. Everything terminates with me. I am is at the center of the church, and that's not God. It's themselves. Laodicea is the only church of the seven that Jesus doesn't have one single good thing to say. Even at Sardis that Sam talked about, it was pretty bad. Remember, they had this reputation of being alive, but they were dead. But there was at least a tiny remnant. There were just a few people that that really were alive. But in Laodicea, it's like the culture, like a tidal wave had just just spilled over into the church. It just swallowed the church up. And now it just didn't look any different than the culture at all. One commentary, one scholar, what Jesus finds repugnant 
as nauseating as the water in the city is the church's superficial complacency, their hallucinations of wealth. What a great term. They're resting on the delusions of affluence, thinking that will insulate them from having a need. Perhaps the most disturbing part of Jesus' assessment, verse 17, not realizing. They don't even see it. They do the annual 360 evaluation. We're looking good. Numbers looking good. Bank account looking good. Building looking good. Everything looking good. Why? Because we're self-sufficient. We're elite. Powerful. We're helping people. Handing out money. Doing whatever we can. Jesus' assessment. Poor, blind, no clothing. My hope is that when you hear this assessment, and as hard as it is, is that you hear them as words of love. It's unloving to see a problem in someone you care about and refuse to point it out. You see a problem and you love the person, as hard as it may be, you've got to point it out. And if you just say, well, I don't, I don't want to point it out, that's really unloving. My wife's favorite movie is a movie called Camelot. There's a line in it, the uglier the truth, the truer the friend that tells you. And see, here's a true friend. Jesus is a true friend. He's coming in and he sees something that's so ugly and they don't see it. And nobody can point it out. And he's, he's the true friend. He's coming in and he's going to point out this ugliness. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So that's Jesus' assessment. Here's his advice. Verse 18, I counsel. His first counsel. It's kind of strange advice. His first counsel we've talked about. First of all, see who you are. You're poor, you're blind. You, you don't have one piece of clothing. Forget elite clothing. And now, now, once that you see yourself completely impoverished, now what is Jesus' advice? What does he say? Now that you have nothing, here's the very first phrase. Okay, buy from me. Okay, now that you have absolutely nothing, now come and buy from me. Buy from me gold that you may be rich. Buy from me these white garments that you would be clothed. Buy from me this salve that you may see. Isn't it interesting? The only way you can buy from Jesus is when you can't possibly pay. The only way you can buy from Jesus is when you can't possibly pay. These words are an echo of Isaiah 55. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Jesus only offers things to people who cannot possibly pay. If you come to Jesus this morning and you bring anything at all, we're going to come and think about that. If you come bringing anything at all, if you come bringing your wealth, your keen religious insight, 
your philosophical thoughts, your obedience to the law, your position, your power, your plan, your dreams, your good works, your sacrifices, your better than average church attendance, or your tithing. If you have anything in your hands of all, you can't hold on to the one thing that Jesus is saying now. He says, now that you have absolutely nothing, now come and buy. Jesus is is passing something out, but it's only available to those who can't possibly pay. Let's just say this out loud. God's economy is completely different than ours. This is, this is 180 degrees than anything that we would dream up. That's one of the ways you know the Bible's true. It's completely different than any human would possibly dream up. This is a 180. So many people inside and outside the church spend their entire lives trying to do something, be something, prove something, suffer something, build something, sacrifice something, give something, all in hopes that God would love them. And God would say, just know you have nothing. Hold on to Jesus, and then you'll have everything. But if you come forward holding on to something, you can't hold on to Jesus at the same time. That's the gospel. Ask, verse 20. Behold, whenever you see that, that's that's the way of saying, now pay attention. I mean, it's all helpful, but in case you were asleep, wake up. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come come into him and eat with him and he with me. We've come to probably the the most well-known yet misunderstood verse in Revelation, and maybe all the Bible. If you were like me growing up in the churches that I grew up in, there was a wall, a prominent wall, that had this picture on the wall. Probably, so, How many think you know what I'm talking about? There's a picture of a tan-looking Jesus. He's got a good tan. He's got a white robe on, standing at like an arched door. It's got some, you know, vines growing around it. And it's the arch door to a home. And he's standing there knocking. I really love that picture. And I was told many, many times that, that see, that the, the door is the door to your heart. And the thing that you noticed about the door, that there was no, there was no uh, handle on the outside. Why? Because it had to be open from the inside. And so if you're an unbeliever, Know that Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. But he won't bust in. You have to open the door. And when you open the door, he comes in and he eats with you and you eat with him. And I was like, gosh, that sounds awesome. It's just not what this Bible verse says. That's a problem. That's not the context of what's happening here. In in Revelation 20, it's not that Jesus is wanting a relationship with those who aren't saved. He's not knocking at the door of the unbeliever. He's knocking at the door of the church. And he's saying, will you let me back in? Do you see how much different that is? He's saying, my own people who knew me, who were in a relationship with me, they pushed me outside of my own church. 
And now I'm at the front door of the church saying, hey, guys, it's Jesus. Can you let me back in my own church? And he's saying to to this church, anyone, if anybody in the church, don't wait for the pastor to do it. Don't wait for the elder to do it. Don't wait for the staff person to do it. Is anyone recognized that Jesus isn't in the church anymore? Jesus has left the building. Is anyone see that? Would you be willing to come and open the door? And Jesus will come back in and eat with him and he with me. The, the picture, all, uh, so many of these illustrations are lifted out of the Old Testament. And the picture here of Jesus knocking on the door comes from the Song of Solomon. You know this book? This is the lover chasing after his beloved. And the lover comes to the bedchamber of his beloved. The, 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 the man comes to the bedchamber of the woman, but she's got her door locked. And he's dying to be with his lover. He's knocking on the door. Will you get up? Will you get up and open the door so we can be together? And Jesus is knocking on the door of his own church saying, we're meant to be together, but you've pushed me out of your building. Would anyone here and come, come and open the door so that I can be with them? Charles Spurgeon, who's got such a great voice, Christ's presence in the church is always a very tender thing. He is never there against the will of the church. He does not break bolt and bar and come in. Notice this. He does not break bolt and bar and come in as he does into a sinner's heart, carrying the soul by storm because the man is dead, and Christ must do it all or the sinner will perish. But here, Jesus is speaking to the living men men and women, and he says, I wish to be among you. Open the door. We ought to open the door at once and say, come in, good Lord. We grieve to think we should have ever put thee outside the door at all. Another surprising part about this verse is that Jesus is knocking on the door at all. He's just said to these people, I can't find anything good to say about you. You make me want to puke. Now, if you had that attitude, would you be trying to get back into that company? No. It's stunning to me that these people who make Jesus want to vomit, he's standing out the door saying, I'm still trying to get back in. Do you see the great steadfast love and perseverance of God to your sinful heart? You might make Jesus want to puke, and he's saying, but I'm still coming for you. I still love you. I still want to embrace you, even after this point. I think I've used this illustration before, but when Zachary was maybe, I don't know, he was eight or ten months, something like that, we're feeding him. Baby food. It, you know baby food. You, it makes you want to puke. It's like the water in Laodicea. You open up the can of, like, squash and, like, oh. But, you know, you're shoveling it in your kid's mouth saying, this is wonderful. You know, watch Daddy take a bite, you know. And uh, so I don't know what happened, but, you know, he just hit the eject button at some point. Just all over him. And Nancy, who's pregnant with my daughter, Morgan, She's already nauseated, right? So she can't, she's not, she's like 30 feet away saying, make sure you get that in his mouth. 
but she can't smell it at all. And he vomits all over himself, and he starts crying. And what does my wife say? Oh, just hug him and hold him. He's scared. You think I was wanting to hug and hold my son? No, I'm like getting the sprayer out going. You got to get cleaned up. We got to get some soap on you. We got to, I mean, I'm not getting close to this, you know, waste site here. But do you see what Jesus is saying? That's what you're like. And I'm trying to get back in. It doesn't matter how terrible you think you look or smell. He's trying to get back in. And if you would just open the door as a church, as a wayward Christian who used to have something but has been so far gone, he's still trying to come back in. He's still trying to come back in to eat together. Let's sit down. Let's have a meal together. Let's enjoy being together. Let's rekindle that old flame that used to serve as a way to help people or refresh people. But now it's just lukewarm. Let's let's come back together. And so what a perfect segue to communion this morning. The table is open for everyone who has empty hands. But if you're holding on to something as your functional Savior, then my encouragement is to pray and say, God, help me put it down. If you're not a Christian, you're holding on to something, some word, some hope. And my uh, instructions for you is just to stay seated. And take a moment to ask yourself, what am I holding on to? And what is it going to promise me after I die? 